Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with the authors of the rapid review, Monkeypox and the Safety of the Blood Supply. Welcome to Drs. Alex Greninger and Louis Katz. Thank you both so much for joining us. Dr. Greninger, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex Greninger. I'm an uh, assistant professor at the University of Washington uh, Medical Center, uh, specializing in clinical pathology and, uh, and in virology specifically. Thank you. And Dr. Katz, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, Louis Katz. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and the emeritus uh, chief medical officer at Impact Life Blood Services and an adjunct clinical professor at the University of Iowa in infectious diseases. Thank you both so much. So this is a little different than our usual podcast. Usually we're looking at a research paper and we ask questions about how did you come up with your idea and what was the impetus? This is a different type of paper. This is a rapid review. So kind of, can you share with us how you came up with doing this? Dr. Katz kind of gave me a glimpse while we were waiting to start recording. Um, sure. So, um, my replacement at the blood center, Daniela Hermelin, one of our co-authors, does uh, a Twitter cast uh, episodically, uh, and she and I had been talking about uh, monkeypox as it relates to the blood supply, and she said, let's do a Twitter cast. So we did. All five of the authors participated, uh, and Daniela took notes, and we turned it into a manuscript. Perfect. So can you summarize what you cover in the rapid review for our listeners? Because some of them may have not read the paper yet. Yeah, the basic virology and history of monkeypox, why we think there may be implications for transfusion medicine, uh, the vaccines that are available with most particular reference, the implications of vaccination for blood donors. And I think we close. Uh, with a simple statement that we need to keep an eye on this uh, without being obsessed that it might be a transfusion transmitted infection. So at this point, there has not been any evidence of transfusion transmission of monkeypox. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, the virus has was discovered uh, in the late 1950s, was demonstrated to be a human pathogen several years later has been endemic in sub-Saharan Africa, where there are currently anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 cases a year. And during all that time, it's not been demonstrated or alleged to be transfusion transmissible. Begs the question, of course, of how hard anybody ever looked. And I, there has been one, uh, I think it was one documentation of a smallpox transfusion uh, transmitted um, case. So there's at least some uh, precedent for orthopox or pox viruses, uh, trans the transfusion. So I was surprised when I read in your paper that there is viremia. So patients with infection actually have viremia. Does that concern you that there is trans there's the possibility of transfusion transmission? This is a great opportunity to be uh, difficult on the nomenclature because there's actually never been cultured virus from people that I've seen, that we saw in the literature. Um, there have been cultured virus from rodents, from prairie dogs and non-human primate uh, animal models. But most of the time, there's been definitely a lot of detection of sort of DNA emia or plasma uh, DNA by PCR. 
So that's been seen in, in you know, a significant proportion of cases, anywhere between sort of five and like you know, 30s to 40% of cases. And, and the overall model for how monkeypox um, infects the human body is that, you know, it enters through a sort of a mucocutaneous surface and then gets into um, uh, white blood cells into monocytes. And then that is how it traffics throughout sort of the body. And you get um, in, in sort of lymph nodes, you also get in, uh, in, in sort of those skin eruptions. Um, and so, you know, it's been known that the sort of this uh, hematogenous, lymphatogenous spread of the virus systemically. So it's been found in, in blood and obviously it's been cultured in the animal models. So the sort of the analogy is right there for it. Um, but again, in humans, uh, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that, you know, that's going to be something that happens before you see uh, skin lesions and, and skin lesions are the major way that people detect monkeypox. Yeah, it, it brings up kind of a, a pet peeve for those of us on the TTD committee at ABB, and that is the tendency in the literature to use the word viremia rather loosely. Uh, and uh, those of us who are reviewing for transfusion and for the other uh, uh, transfusion medicine journals are really getting pretty dogged about telling um, authors of manuscripts, if you mean viremia, you mean the virus. If you mean nucleic acid emia, you need to say so and you need to differentiate it. And, and at least in humans, um, it really hasn't been clearly demonstrated yet in humans that this is a infectious viremia. That is very good to know. And I've clearly revealed myself as a non-infectious disease expert. So thank you. Um, but I think that's a really good point is there's a difference between virus and nucleic acid. So, Alex, you mentioned that there was potentially a case of smallpox transmitted, a transfusion transmission. Are you aware of any cases of monkeypox that are temporally associated with transfusion? At this point, I, I am not. You know, I think there's been, a, like, again, I think there's been a couple actual sort of review, almost opinion articles, sort of like ours uh, in, the, in the literature, sort of saying that this is a potential issue. Um, but again, there's really not a ton of evidence. I think the other thing I would say, in addition to the animal model data where there is uh, viremia detected, culturable virus um, from the blood, uh, is that, you know, usually when you're culturing the blood, um, you know, on, on, on uh, cells that are competent for infection, uh, you're using very little blood. So I think another angle here as well is the, the sheer sort of inoculum amounts in a transfusion versus that when we're doing a laboratory culture are going to be sort of radically different, as well as the competency of the, of the immune system and the recipient is going to be significantly less. So I think those are other things that sort of uh, lead people to worry about this. Um, the context of that, trans, that transfusion transmission would be, there'd be significantly more inoculum uh, and a significantly sort of uh, more receptive um, immune system, if you would. Uh, to that to that virus. That's, that's a consideration. But again, we're sitting here talking about, we're talking, the entire time we're talking here, we're going to be talking about zero, zero known cases. I mean, that's not going to change over this, uh, this, this 15 minutes. When, uh, when you look at the non-human primate models of parenteral inoculation, uh, the amount of virus being used um, is quite high. And so you can see then that we have to ask what's an infectious dose, in what form, uh, even if there is viremia in a human, is it enough to establish infections? All these questions that really haven't been clearly investigated um, and uh, perhaps should be. 
given our concerns. And of course, there's another confounder here, which too is is fomite as well. Um, you know, obviously, you can go back and test the product to see if there's monkeypox in the products. There's you know at least some laboratory testing or work that can be done. But I'm all I'm I'm I, we've been asked several times at the virology lab to investigate um, breast milk uh, for transmission to um, uh, to newborns potential uh, potential transmission or concerns over it. And, you know, there you're like, all right, well, we can test the breast milk, but really we have all this like skin on skin contact that's happening at the exact same time. So, you know, how do you really control for that? And I think sometimes some of the same similar considerations when it comes to to trans to to transfusion, potentially, you know, depending on because on the bag or whatnot, too. But it's a lesser case. But I mean, you could there you can test the product. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about for our donor room staff, if there are things we need to be worried about with chairs and shared equipment and things like that. Is that something that donor centers should be concerned about during for this specific pathogen? Well, you know, we've established a number of criteria for transfusion transmissibility. First is the donor has to be infected and well enough to donate. And that in and of itself is an interesting topic to discuss. Then assuming the donor really is, has an infectious, potentially infectious viremia, the virus has to survive the processing and storage of the product. And in the case of at least the U.S., where virtually everything cellular is leukoreduced, and we believe that there's a strong leukocyte association of the virus, interesting question of whether if there is risk, uh, nearly universal leukoreduction in the U.S. reduces that risk. And finally, it has to find a competent um, cellular target via the parenteral route. Uh, with monkeypox, I think that's likely to be the case because it's how the virus disseminates, uh, we believe. so. But there are a number of different barriers that the virus has to pass um, that even beyond whether there is infectious virus in the blood. So for those of us in hospital-based transfusion centers, how would you recommend we handle like a post-donation information. So our blood center tells you this donor donated and a few days later they called back and had been diagnosed with monkeypox or had come down with symptoms. Would you recommend us telling the recipient of that blood? Well, in a data-free zone, no. <laughs> um, the, this virus so far, we have no evidence yet that it's transfusion transmissible and reasons to think um, that a healthy donor uh, might not be. The conventional wisdom has been um, that transmission occurs from symptomatic individuals. And uh, uh, in the absence of understanding an infectious viremia, I probably uh, would not. Um, uh, the FDA is not requiring it. The uh, TTD committee at ABB has not moved in that direction. If I was going to uh, it would be have to be a very carefully crafted message about the lack of demonstrable risk uh, and the need to just engage uh, in clinical follow-up, essentially. I, I don't think I have a reasonable message to give a donor or the, the staff who do not have direct um, contact with lesions during the donation process. That's good to know. These are always hard to handle in any situation. And I think that's good to know that I, I was like, I wouldn't tell someone. So it's good to hear you say you wouldn't tell them either because it just causes fear, I think, without, again, a data-free zone. 
Um, how would you recommend handling a donor who had had the vaccine as a post-exposure prophylaxis? Would you allow them to donate? No, probably not. Abundance of caution. Um, if they've been exposed, uh, then we should let them get past their incubation period and be sure they're a healthy donor. So a lot of countries, not the U.S., have switched to an individual risk-based donor questionnaire. And how do you think this informs both this outbreak and pandemic and potentially our next one? Who knows what that will be down the road? I'm giving another talk soon about uh, pandemics in the blood supply. And my first slide is a quote from Mike Osterholm uh, at University of Minnesota. When you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. So I can't use monkeypox to predict what the next one's going to look like. Um, and, and so I don't, I try not to generalize um, uh, from virus X to virus Y that's, that's completely distinct. I think it's just dangerous to do that and you underreact and overreact. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. The last two we've experienced have been very different, for sure. Uh, the public concern over monkeypox has seems to be waning at this point. What can we learn from this outbreak and the response to this one? Again, like you said, every pandemic's different. But what do you think of our response to the monkeypox outbreak at this time? I'd like to say that the first thing to say about the response to the monkeypox outbreak is that it's not over. <laughs> I mean, there's the CDC forecasting group. You know, I think there's this there's a sort of, you know, I don't know, I just, uh, there's a sort of a desire to sort of live at the first derivative, um, you know, where people want to be like, all right, well, we're, you know, it's going down. Therefore, you know, we look at current trends and we expect things to continue to go down. But the honest truth is that, you know, it's probably actually a lot of behavioral change uh, that, that has affected this. And so if you take your eye off the ball, uh, you're just likely to see it sort of uh, persist at a, a low level or come back up potentially. Um, I mean, the good news is this DNA virus. We've done this before with, pox, with, with smallpox. So, you know, we have, um, we showed up with a diagnostic test, a vaccine and, and sort of a a somewhat of an antiviral uh, uh, in, in hand, um, although all off of animal data. And so this is sort of a, a best case scenario. I think there's a lot of lessons, I think, to learn from this one. I think, you know, it's, uh, there's many aspects of this, this sort of outbreak that are intriguing to me. One is the fact that we've spent, you know, 20 years or longer worrying about, you know, Iraq or Russia or like smallpox from a security-based angle and then it turned out that the time that we needed all of these tools, you know, or we was during, you know, was basically a, a monkeypox uh, endemic disease in central, you know, sub-Saharan Africa that was largely spread through, you know, what seems to be, you know, uh, MSM population and, and sort of uh, anal sex. It's a very different sort of world than what was prepared for, but having that preparedness was uh, certainly helpful. So I think there are actually things in the wake of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic that actually are going to help us in that regard from, you know, getting, having drugs or trying to make vaccines or monoclonals to be ready against the many, many other um, uh, viral families. Uh, so I think that's always, maybe that's always an interesting consideration for this sort of outbreak. But the other part is that we were still slow off, uh, you know, off the line. You know, it takes a while uh, to get diagnostic testing up, public health, 
didn't really do that much testing all told. They did work with, you know, reference labs to get testing up, but even that took several months and you want to get it really early. That's when you want the, you're be able to ramp up quickly if you're trying to prevent. I think one other aspect that we haven't talked about here is testing alternative specimen types. If we're sitting here talking about monkeypox specifically in the context of transfusion, you know, the FDA has rules right now for basically only testing, um, uh, swabs from skin lesions, which are by far the best diagnostic specimen types for case detection, the virus is at high levels, it's easier to tell who to test, and you know, you're not setting up a big screen operation on the corner, you know, and trying to build do like a cash build business to test, you know, saliva. But on the other hand, it has made testing of plasma, whole blood, um, uh, more difficult to catch some of these potentially early cases. And so I think there's still some work around how we test alternative specimen types in some of these evidence-free zones um, where we don't know exactly uh, specifically where the virus, you know, we think it's there, but we got to be able to test um, in a responsible manner in those alternative specimen types to be able to, to create the evidence base that allows us to, you know, we can't all just do clinical studies for a year and then submit our data and then be ready to test, you know, a year from now. Sorry for that long soliloquy. That was perfect. Thank you. Well, and there's another lesson, and that is monkeypox has been out there in sub-Saharan Africa for decades. And a lot of the questions we had could have been answered um, had we been paying closer attention to, um, to the developing world. It really is glaring in the case of monkeypox. Thousands of cases a year in sub-Saharan Africa. And some of these questions uh, might have been easily answered uh, during that long interval, which was a major topic of the NIH State of the Science and Transfusion Medicine uh, Emerging Infections uh, section uh, last month. How can we be sure that what's happening in the field and far afield triggers somebody to do the basic work about pathogens in the blood, and the potential for transfusion. And there we can also sort of analogize from another pandemic, which is HIV, where we've built up a large um, clinical trial testing and uh, uh, infrastructure in, in South Africa, which um, has done quite swimmingly. And we've, we've, we've used it again for SARS-CoV-2 to understand variants. And they've always been early, early in detecting and characterizing variants, as well as, you know, us looking at... Um, uh, some of the beta variant specific vaccines, you know, were trialed there as well. And so, you know, that is that is sort of prior pandemic has that did make a small positive impact in a future pandemic there uh, with HIV to SARS-CoV-2. And here I think about all the vaccine that we had to toss uh, against monkeypox or, you know, drug right now we're trying to ch chase cases in the United States to do an antiviral trial for T-pox or Tecovirumat. And, you know, for a long time, there were lots of, of cases that, that could have been trialed and we could have had data beyond, um, you know, to know whether it works or not, and as well as to get better diagnostics up as well. Right now, we're spending public dollars trying to do that. And, you know, before we were just using the case that there wasn't a market for it, and we didn't anticipate that this would spread, you know, as well as it has. I think you bring up a lot of really good points, especially the alternative uh testing material, right? Not everything is going to be a swabs. I think that's incredibly important. Going from what you were speaking about, about the fact that we shouldn't be shocked that we have a mon monkeypox outbreak. It's an endemic infection. Using your crystal ball, what should we be looking out for in the future? What What's the next thing that's going to knock on our door that we're 
going to be surprised by and not ready for potentially? Well, when we look at the pandemics that have occurred during my career, so 40 years or so, HIV, 99B hepatitis, hepatitis C were the first two. They were chronic infections with a lot of time asymptomatic. After those, it's been acute respiratory and vector-borne infections. So I think we really need to be thinking very carefully up front. Uh, I mean, every week there's a ProMed post about some virus that appears to be making a zoonotic jump or or jumping in a vector uh, from an ecologic niche into humans, a few cases. And we need to ask how we build an infrastructure that asks a few questions uh, relative to transmission by substances of human origins very, very early on and very, very close to the sources of those viruses uh, so that we know if there's infectious viremia early on. Uh, And then uh, when we find that there is, we can start moving beyond that to think about leveraging donor populations and whatnot to get the information we need rapidly. Yeah, and I think think it's really difficult to you have to, I mean, at some point, you have to put your nickel down on different groups. I mean, obviously, they're like, uh, like Louis said, the acute respiratory infections. We've shown how that's different uh, from a SARS-CoV-2 angle and how it evolves quickly and how it really hasn't actually, respiratory viruses have an anatomical advantage as well in terms they only have to infect just that outer layer and then they're in your airway and spreading um, quite, quite rapidly. But, I mean, you've seen that there's a lot of efforts. And I think one of the heartening things from a SARS-CoV-2 standpoint has been you know, how quickly we were able to make, you know, a sort of a scientific community, um, regulators, scientists, pharma, uh, academics, the whole groups, the monoclonal therapies that were authorized. We've three authorized small molecules. We have all of these rapid over 400 diagnostic tests that were authorized. I mean, we've had for a long time the scientific ability to make diagnostics, to make therapies and to make, you know, and obviously new uh, uh, platforms for vaccines. So I think that's all very exciting. It's really just, um, incentivizing the continued development and having something on the shelf that allows us to pivot quickly. Um, so I think that that's really, that to me, I really just think about it from a regulatory standpoint now. It's like, what are we going to allow for, you know, how we can pivot quickly? Because it's hard. You can try to make, I mean, right now there's uh, NIH um, centers for making antivirals, the AVID centers for making antivirals against um, all, many of these different uh, groups of, of families of viruses that have pandemic potential. But, you know, we've seen quite an array just in the last, like, what are we talking about, five to six years, whether it was Zika, SARS-CoV-2, monkeypox. I mean, that's, those are three very different scenarios in each between basically became a sexually transmitted infection, an acute respiratory illness, and a vector-borne disease. And so we know we have to stay nimble, um, but that anything can be thrown at us at any, at any time. I guess it also begs the question of the role of pathogen reduction, which is not yet a mature uh, process in blood banking. We really only have it, uh, at least in the U.S., for platelets and plasma. Uh, but it's much more proactive than the approaches we've always used uh, and can be validated against large families of viruses ahead of any uh, clinical need. So, And that ends up being assuming that we get appropriate processes for whole blood and red cells in addition to platelets and plasma, then it becomes a cost-benefit calculation. What's the likelihood that processes that cost $100 or $200 per component 
uh, are something that's going to be supported uh, in the healthcare system over the long haul? It's a fascinating sort of ethical question that is hard to answer. I think it makes a really good point. We could be much more proactive than, like you said, reactive, realizing there's an infection, trying to figure out how to detect it, who, what donors is it going to be in? So, yeah, it's a really good point, but it's not cheap. Uh, no, it isn't. And But the process to deciding that something is a serious threat to the blood supply uh, isn't necessarily simple. And pathogen reduction, in a very real sense, can abrogate the need. Absolutely. I still wouldn't take my, my eye off the ball of what the sort of quotidian requirements. I'm speaking as a non-transfusion, someone who did a TP residency. So my transfusion attendees would be sad if I said this, but it would also be realistic <laughs> that I don't do transfusion on a day-to-day basis. It's but okay. I just want not to make sure it's not that for you... everyone. We get that. <laughs> well, not everyone can be as good as y'all. So, you know, but don't take your eye off the ball of the quotidian sort of, you know, issues that, that face uh, transfusion medicine. I do think sometimes it's, it's kind of amazing how much pandemic preparedness gets bandied about. Um, and so it really, that to me, is it just really the flexibility to respond, um, to use our scientific tools is what, what most greatly interests me. I mean, I think there's all kinds of opportunities and, uh, for, for, I mean, I'm virologist folks on the diagnostic testing standpoint, but pooling specimens to be able to test low prevalence, you know, PCR, we can make assays. We have great, highly automated equipment now after all the pandemics. So, you know, I think there's also an angle there. So you really just want to make sure that you're solving the problems that face you, you know, today as well. If there's an upside on it on the path on the pandemic side. That's great. But, you know, good point. So just to close out, what advice would you give to donor centers? What's your take home message to donor centers about monkeypox? Well, certainly at ABB and the Transfusion Transmitted Diseases Committee, uh, it has been stay tuned there's a group of eight or nine people that are spending a lot of time combing the literature for clues about whether we need to be concerned, and if so, how much. Obviously, we're concerned, but the question is uh, how much effort in intervention uh, is required. And in the U.S., where we still have the MSM deferral, uh, that's probably been adequate um, if the pandemic broadens into uh, other behavioral groups, everything may change. So it's stay tuned. And what advice would you give to transfusion services regarding monkeypox? Those, uh, those of us in the hospital transfusing patients, same message? Yeah. Yeah. Just be sure that you're hearing uh, and reading uh, what gets published and distributed by the part of the blood community that thinks about emerging infections. Um, I think watch and wait is very appropriate uh, right now, uh, but that can change. For example, if an animal reservoir becomes infected uh, or increasing cases in risk groups that aren't already uh, being screened, those sorts of things uh, can change very quickly. And that's our show. Thank you to Drs. Greninger and Katz for joining us for a really insightful discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.